We're now in Madrid and enjoying staying put for a few days. We arrive today, Sunday afternoon, and we leave Wednesday morning to fly to Lisbon. I've been on the fence about this constant moving and steady pace of the past five days, including today. So far, we've had two nights in Paris, and otherwise one in Avignon and one in Barcelona. Was it too much? Was it a silly idea? We didn't see much of any one place at all. That was always the expectation, and in turn, that's why we're spending longer here in Madrid, a place we've never been to. But I still had envisioned seeing a bit more of Paris and even Barcelona. You think of going to a place, and in those cases, they are places we've been to before, so I can picture where to go, sites I'd like to see again, and things maybe I didn't get to see previously. It's easy to assume that you'll probably get to at least some of those places. I've never been out to La Défense in Paris, for example. I know it's just a postmodernist collection of glass towers and this mega arch, uh, hence why it wasn't a huge priority in the past, but it's something I've never seen, and it would be something new to see, so I kind of figured we would have time to get out there. The reality was we had about five hours sightseeing in Paris Thursday afternoon, and obviously the top place we had to go was the Eiffel Tower so the kids could stand underneath, which is wonderful. I, I wouldn't have wanted to do anything else. But by the time we do that, take lots of breaks, get some food, go a bit further, have to backtrack on the metro, and do it all at a pretty slow pace. By then it was 8 p.m. as we left the Centre Pompidou, and it was time to head back to the hotel. So granted, we were far short of a full day of sightseeing, having only started around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but that's as far as we could get during that time. I mean, I'm used to flying around a city and scooping up as many highlights and landmarks as possible. You know that pace is going to change when it's with young kids, but sometimes the scale of that change is still a shock. Sometimes I'm still thinking as an adult traveler, not as a parent traveler. In Barcelona, we only arrived at the hotel just after 5.30 p.m., at which point we were all pretty tired after a long train ride, squeezing onto the metro with our bags, and then walking another 10 minutes, which doesn't sound like much, but with heavy bags and tired children, it is. <laughs> It's amazing how the kids, though, perk up completely once we've checked into a place. Then they can unpack their bags and spread out some stuff, jump on the beds, or in this case, climb up on their bunk beds and thoroughly enjoy the simple pleasures. You throw in a snack and they are rejuvenated after 30-40 minutes. Still, we didn't head out to get to the Sagrada Familia until close to 7 p.m. So the things we didn't see in Barcelona, some things I'd seen before, but still, I was hoping to hopefully wander around the seaside parks or Montjuic Park where much of the Olympics took place, seeing more Gaudi sites or exploring the many octagon squares throughout the central city. Instead, this morning I was back on a train which left at 10.41 for Madrid. Well, of course we didn't see more. We only planned one night in the first place. So the question is, should we have stayed longer? And was it worth pushing them through all the trains and metros and walking to barely see anything? Well... It was either that, or stay longer in all of these places, and thus both spend a lot more money, and take longer to get to Portugal, and have less time there. Or we could have just flown from Paris in the first place, direct to Lisbon or, or Porto. So it seemed the best compromise was, and this goes back to the planning in the first place, let's go overland, get to see a bit of Paris, Avignon, Montpellier, Barcelona, better than nothing at all, and then purposefully spend more time here in Madrid, so those three options, going straight from Paris to Portugal, going, say, over a couple of weeks and taking our time overland, or going overland but just doing it relatively quickly, of those three options, that seemed the most logical and the best compromise. So I remind myself of that when I have had doubts the past few days.
Reflecting on that now, we're already five days into the trip, one main thing comes to mind. I am so glad that we have both the extra time here in Madrid to catch our breath, not pack up again in the morning, to do a bit of our own cooking, and absolutely have time to do some laundry, but also in particular that we will have so much time in Lisbon and Sintra coming up. That's what makes this all worthwhile and even possible. Imagine a typical whirlwind two-week trip to Europe, which is what most of us generally do. You know, you're constantly moving around. You're never staying anywhere for more than, say, three nights. I mean, you'd hopefully enjoy it and appreciate it, but you'd also be really looking forward to getting home, washing, cleaning, catching your breath, especially given that you've disrupted your typical parenting routine. So it does get pretty exhausting moving around so much, even if it makes sense to do so, because that's how you see more. You make the most of your time. So staying put in Lisbon will be a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to unpacking, getting to know the neighborhood, popping into the city from time to time, and feeling like a bit of a local. We left Avignon Saturday morning to head back to the Avignon Centre train station, a roughly 10-minute walk. True to form, the town is quiet, peaceful, the birds are chirping, the occasional church bell ringing out. The journey towards Barcelona involved two trains, and thus a stopover in Montpellier, but that still gave us lots of time without feeling rushed. Avignon to Montpellier is roughly an hour and 15 minutes on a regional train, going through the rolling and ancient countryside of Provence. You get a feel for the Mediterranean climate as the train goes past innumerable vineyards, olive tree groves, and dry, chalky soil. You can really see it from the train. We passed through Nîmes and saw a few of the city's Roman ruins from the train. This isn't too far from the famous Pont du Gard aqueduct, at 20 kilometers too far to see from the train, unfortunately, but we know it was there. It was built to bring water to Nîmes when it was a thriving Roman regional capital roughly 2,000 years ago. We reached Montpellier around 11 in the morning and had a good two and a half hours before our fast train to Barcelona would depart. Although we wouldn't go far, we could at least make the short walk from the train station to the Place de la Comédie, the central meeting spot in the city. There was a busker playing acoustic guitar into a portable amplifier, trams going back and forth, and quite a bit of open space, even with the various cafes and outdoor seating spread out all around. We wanted to find some kind of brunch-type meal instead of the usual baguettes and croissants again. French food is incredible, and virtually every dish is a delicacy. Sometimes it gets a little tiring simply trying to find something to eat that isn't fast food, isn't 30 euros each, and most of all isn't some foie gras, crème fraîche, tartare du canard, or whatever, that probably comes as a very rich and minuscule serving. So you end up browsing the outdoor menus from place to place, looking for something that will hopefully be good value and filling. One restaurant, Le Grand Café Riche, despite its name, had a good brunch special on offer until 11.30 for about 12 euros per plate. It was 11.15 though, and they were already wanting to switch over to the lunch menu. It's often hard to get a straight answer at a French restaurant when you just want a table. The waiters look at you like you're supposed to know what you're doing and how things work. Someone motioned for us to sit down at the outdoor terrace, so we did. And then someone else said, no, you're not supposed to sit there. So we moved to another section. Then a guy brought over two little espresso shots and the bill to go with it. <laughs> we explained, well, we're here for the brunch if it's not too late, given that it's not quite 11.30 yet. So he shrugged and he came back, though. He took the order. The food arrived quite quickly. It was a serving of three eggs, toast with half an avocado covered in sesame seeds on top, thick pieces of bacon, a café au lait, a basket of fresh baguette sliced in half with butter, and then another basket of more baguette pieces cut in the small typical slices with different types of jam and more butter. 
We were glad we only ordered two plates, as it was more than enough food for four of us. But finally we had the type of meal we were looking for, and the time to enjoy it. Afterwards, the kids got a ride on the square's carousel, a common sight in France. They got one in Avignon, too. And then another ride on the tram, just a quick one-stop ride back to the train station, which, of course, we hopped in for free. And Hugo got the tram in the color he wanted. He was quite pleased. Our train from Montpellier to Barcelona was not Ouigo this time, but Inui, supposedly the fancier version, certainly the more expensive. It was a three-hour, 20-minute trip versus two hours, 45 minutes from Paris to Avignon, so pretty similar, but was more than twice as expensive. It was 165 euros for four of us compared to 80 euros the day before. Unsurprisingly, it was not that much more spectacular. The seats were just as faded and there wasn't a lot of luggage space. The major difference is a bar and snack car, which obviously you had to pay for anyway. And the Wi-Fi at least worked this time. The train makes a few stops as it goes along the coast towards the Spanish border. At times, the line is right next to the beach, a few hundred feet from the sea. You wonder, what's it doing way out here? But it often comes down to the planning and zoning for the high-speed lines, as people typically don't want them in their backyard. It does make it more dramatic, though, and the lower Pyrenees Mountains start to come into view. After Perpignan, the train really takes off. This is a newer stretch of track, which completed the high-speed connection between France and Spain a few years ago. You can feel the thrust as it cruises past 300 kilometers an hour. <laughs> We then enter the Pertus Tunnel, which is eight kilometers long. It goes underneath the Pyrenees, and it enables the line to exist in the first place. Of course, you don't see anything when you're in it, but it's an impressive feat of engineering. You emerge on the other side in the hills of northeast Catalonia, and you're in Barcelona in scarcely another hour. I had found a hostel between the Sagrada Familia and that shiny modern gherkin-shaped skyscraper in Barcelona. You might recognize it from pictures of the city. The kids called it a rocket ship. The official name is Torre Glories. We could see it clearly down the street from the corner of our room. The hostel didn't have private rooms per se, but allowed families to book rooms with two bunk beds. It's called the Urbani Hostel, and it's one of the nicest hostels I've ever stayed in. Not that I've been in many for the past 10 years. I wonder if the standards have increased? The room was clean, beds were comfortable, it had a private washroom with a shower. It was just very straightforward, simple, functional, easy to clean, hooks for your coats, which is a rarity it seems in Europe and big lockers for when it's otherwise a dorm room. There was a bar outdoor terrace on the floor above us with great views of Avignon de Meridiana, one of the main boulevards into the city, and the Torre. In the summer, there's even a rooftop bar up on the 13th floor. Plus, there's a kitchen, there's a laundry, little book exchange corner and more. It's a really nice place and about 75 euros for the room. We weren't sure if we could expect the kids to walk to the Sagrada and back a good 20 minutes each way, but... After their little recuperation came the burst of energy, aided by only having to wear their jackets. It was a nice 12-13 degrees outside, and a direct walk seven blocks to the Basilica. Barcelona, of course, has those rounded-off buildings on virtually every intersection, which sacrifice inside square footage for more outdoor space, whether it's a little cafe and terraces, motorcycle parking, taxi stands, sculptures, lots more. It means you can't walk in a straight line to cross the street. You have to jog to the right to get to the crosswalk, then back to the main sidewalk to carry on. But of course, it's definitely worth it. As we got to within a couple blocks, I could see a shiny stone star at the top of a floodlit tower peeking out. Instantly, I realized how nice it was to see the Sagrada at night this time. Fifteen years ago, we were here during the day. The lighting is spectacular. You can clearly make out the various fantastic components of the building. Since we were last here, the shorter of the central towers, the one with the star, has been completed. 
And it looks like work is at least 50% done on the main central tower, the biggest of them all. It looks like that might be the last major component to be constructed, too. They were apparently on track to complete the building by 2026, which would be the 100th anniversary of Gaudi's death, but it was delayed by the pandemic. Nevertheless, all things considered, it might actually be done pretty soon. The south facade, which is intended as the principal entrance, also remains to be finished. It's hard to get a sense of its progress because it's behind tall construction walls and the sidewalk in front is quite narrow. When you look from there across the street, it looks like just regular apartments in the buildings there. I mean, imagine living across the street from the Sagrada Familia. (laughs) Well, part of the master plan was always to demolish much of those buildings to enable enough space and a proper grandiose setting and approach. This could eliminate up to 3,000 homes and kick out 15,000 residents, according to one article I read. Those numbers sound a little inflated, but still, you you do suddenly realize that for people who live there and just go about their daily lives, maybe it's not such a fantastic project after all. Apparently, there might be a resolution to the problem as soon as this spring, although likely at least part of the block would be torn down. As you heard in my audio interlude from yesterday, not only did we capture the bell ringing at the top of the hour, but also the carillon that followed. As it turns out, they have installed tubular bells in the towers. You can hear that the melody was surely too quick to be played by conventional hung bells, so I'm guessing there must be like electric hammers now inside that make it possible. Actually, a side note on that interlude. I got it ready and uploaded at 1.30 in the morning, too tired to do anything more. It turns out I selected the wrong file by mistake. So, you had the January 13th episode uploaded twice, two days in a row. If you came looking for the right one, I fixed it now, and you can tell because it's only 3 minutes, 44 seconds long. Merci à mon ami Martin de me l'avoir fait savoir. (laughs) Which also speaks to the other reality of this trip. I am still working and producing podcasts for my clients, although I've kept it to a part-time basis. There are moments, though, when deadlines arrive and I may not have the time nor the internet to get my work done until the end of a long, busy day, which was the case yesterday. We got a new Destination Morocco episode out, so I'm happy about that, but it's well past midnight, Barcelona time, by the time it was done. Another reason why slow travel is the only way to balance sightseeing, parenting, and work simultaneously. We finished the evening otherwise with a tapas meal at a restaurant next to the hostel. It was late for us, around 8.30pm, but of course early for Barcelona. The restaurant wasn't packed, but it was still very, very loud. The kids had a hard time with the volume, and I couldn't blame them. Despite the location, it was clearly a restaurant geared towards locals and not tourists. Trying to read the menu, exclusively in Spanish, proved a challenge until we realized it was in fact exclusively in Catalan. I remember this from 15 years ago. Street signs, menus, directions, and more are all written in Catalan, Castilian Spanish, and then sometimes in English, or maybe French. You start reading a sentence, and okay, it's making sense, and then boom, there's a completely unfamiliar word out of nowhere. Many words are quite similar. Semana and setmana, adios and adieu, calle and carrer. But then there was a type of juice on the menu, suc presic, peach juice as it turns out. Strawberry is madwixa, to be hungry, tener hambre, or estoy hambriento, in español, is tenir gana or tink gana, first person, in Catalan. There are roughly 4 million people who speak Catalan as a first language and another 5 million for whom it's a second language. There's a lot of political history that is still very much playing out these days in Catalonia and beyond, but it's always good to see a language that's thriving. On to today, Sunday the 15th, it was back on the train. I had read that taxis in Barcelona are quite affordable, 
It had cost two euros forty cents per ticket to use the metro uh, the night before. They don't have child discounts, so it was nine euros sixty for a fifteen-minute trip. We got a taxi from the hostel back to Barcelona Sant Station, and it was eleven euros total, one euro forty more. Money incredibly well spent. Today's journey was back on the WeGo, the kids' favorite train. They get a kick out of all the brand names of the train. You have WeGo, Inui, Avlo here in Spain. The Zo train in Provence, Z-O-U. We'll see what we find in Portugal. It takes roughly 2 hours, 45 minutes on high-speed train from Barcelona to Madrid with one stop midway in Zaragoza. It's a trip that's about 600 kilometers and would take 6 hours by car. Most of the journey is on the high plateau of central Spain. Dry hills and rolling hills, very brown. The fog rolled in about halfway and for a time we couldn't see more than 50 feet outside the train. I expected a rainy arrival in Madrid, but the train came out of the hills and there were patches of blue sky and sun, so it was all good. This route is known for its discount prices and cutthroat competition amongst high-speed rail companies, so two adult and two child tickets came to about 62 euros. Once again, we took a taxi from the train station to our Airbnb. This time it was even cheaper, 6 euros for a 10-minute ride right to the door. The apartment here is small, but it's lovely, it's modern. The kids have their own little loft with a double bed where even they can't stand up without hitting their heads. They're counting three hits so far for Dahlia, two for Hugo. An adult literally has to crawl on all fours from the top of the ladder to the bed, but it's fun. It's very clean, uh, wood paneling, there's wood beams in the walls, there's new appliances, it's a nice spot. We are around the corner from the Calle de Embajadores, a narrow but busy street that connects the bottom of the central hill of the city to the top and the Plaza Mayor. We walked to the plaza tonight. It's about 10 minutes away. It was relatively busy, but nothing like in the main tourist seasons. There are cafes and bars everywhere along the streets. I saw one that was a draft beer local microbrewery tap house. Maybe we can convince the kids to go. Interestingly, I saw a fair number of young kids the age of ours out with their parents at 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. Maybe tourists too, but they seem like locals. We'll capture some more sounds of the city tomorrow and hope to get into the Royal Palace when the free access begins at 4 p.m., according to the website. The plan is definitely to get hop-on, hop-off bus tickets to be able to really explore the city. Although I am a tour guide, I was never one for taking bus tours myself, but now with kids, it's just perfect. You get easy transportation, you cover lots of ground, the flexibility to hop on and off, and even learn something along the way. And best of all, it's a double-decker bus. Instant winner. Maybe I'll stick to a short update tomorrow, or maybe take a proper night off. We'll see. Once we're settled in Lisbon, I'll reflect on and share the experience of preparing and recording something every night while traveling. It's a lot to manage, but it's exciting to be doing it in real time. That was always my goal. So, buenas noches from Madrid. Y hasta mañana.